those of you who are online, I want to thank you for uh, hanging out with us. If you're surfing, hang on to this wave for a little longer. You don't know what I'm talking about, or if that was a really bad joke, please pardon me. Oh, hey, I am still challenged by something I read several years ago. Uh, it is a thought I cannot escape. It keeps coming back to me. It's, a, it's, it's from a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Some of uh, you may have read it. Uh, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's written by uh, Pastor Jim Simbola. Uh, in, in it, he writes these words. Our forebears back in the camp meeting days used to say that if people left a meeting talking about a what a wonderful sermon the preacher gave, or how this beautifully the singer sang, the meeting failed. But if people went home saying things like, isn't God good? He met me tonight in such a wonderful way. It was a good them there was to be no sharing of the platform with anyone but the Lord. And I find myself wondering in these days why does it feel like following Jesus is more like a struggle to survive than a great way to live? great way of life. Why is, why is it feeling more like a struggle? You know, we've all been asking that question, haven't we? Maybe uh, we don't ask it in those words, but we ask related questions like, where have all the people gone? I know, because I've heard it. Why aren't they coming? Why can't we attract new people? What can we do to attract new people? Um, sometimes questions are more in the form of statements. Uh, if only we had a program like that church over there. I'm a pastor. I talk to other pastors. I just want you to know that what looks like green grass at a church over there is a leaky septic tank. Just... I know, I just smile every time I hear somebody say something like that, because I've talked to them. I've been in this town long enough that I know a lot of the pastors, and we talk to each other, and so I know where the leaky septic tanks are. I mean that figuratively, okay. Yeah, hopefully, because, you know, yeah. The other time, you know, if only he or she would do this or that, right? Or sometimes it's, if only they wouldn't have done that, or if they had only made this decision instead of that decision. Um, but 
I'm wondering, what, what if these are like surface issues, these questions that we ask and these statements that we make, these things that we look at and think, these are the problems, what if these are really just surface issues? What if there is a deep-rooted need that we ought to address that we're not addressing? Dr. Stephen Elliott uh, is a good Wesleyan, so I feel good quoting him at a Wesleyan church. Uh, he's the national superintendent of the Wesleyan Church in Canada, uh, professor at one of our uh, Wesleyan colleges, and uh, so, you know, uh, if, if I understand correctly, he's like a fourth generation Wesleyan. He's been a Wesleyan longer than my family's been a Wesleyan. So I'm impressed. Uh, and um, he was recently interviewed by our regional superintendent, Dr. Chris Conrad, um, on his, Dr. Conrad's, uh, Chris Conrad's podcast. And uh, Dr. Elliott says, I believe he's spot on when he says this, I believe the number one reason people go to church gatherings or services is not out of a need or a desire to connect relationally to other people, but out of a deep-seated longing to experience and encounter the God of the universe. When people leave the church week after week feeling that they have not encountered God, they eventually grow disillusioned, disappointed, and confused. This, I believe, is at the root of our failing attendance. The decline in the number of people coming to church has little to nothing to do with programming, facilities, worship styles, staffing, or advertising. Pastor Jim Simbola described the early days of uh, their work at the Brooklyn Tabernacle in the same way, or similar way. He said, people weren't hungry for fancy sermons or organizational polish. They just wanted love. They wanted to know that God could pick them up and give them a second chance. Amen. So, that got me thinking. I like to think. I like to ask questions. What might, what might motivate people to continue attending church meetings where they never encounter God? As Dr. Elliott said, uh, when that they don't, when people don't encounter God, they eventually grow disillusioned, disappointed, and confused. And so many of them, many folks just come. They try. They don't experience meeting with God, and they leave. So why do others keep coming? These probably don't have anything to do with anyone in this room or online right now, but here are some of the ones that I came up with as I was thinking, as I answered this question. What might motivate people to continue attending church meetings where they never encounter God? Fear. Because I certainly don't want to make God mad for not showing up. Guilt. Because 
I've done enough stuff in my life that I need to make up for. Obligation. I promised my mama 150 years ago. Well, not really, but you know, I promised my mama I'd always go to church. <laughs> Habit and ritual. I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't show up at church. Tradition. I've always done it that way. And I look at this list, and I'm sure there are other reasons, don't get me wrong, but it, it may be eternal optimism. Surely it'll happen this week. <laughs> it's got to happen this week. Okay, well, maybe next week. I mean, there are baseball fans like that, right? Yeah. Maybe next year we'll win the pennant. Nobody in Michigan understands that idea. Say that out loud. See, but it seems to me there has to be more to following Jesus than attending church meetings and not encountering God simply out of fear, guilt, obligation, habitual, ritual, tradition, and the hope that maybe this time it will meet him. Maybe this time Jesus will show up. And if there's not, why bother? actually said that out loud. Why does following Jesus feel more like a struggle to survive than a great way of life these days? We are not the first group of Jesus followers to ask this question. It started in the first century. Uh, we're back in the book of Romans. We, we're there uh, last week, we're at the Apostle Paul's letter to the congregation in the first city of uh, first century city of Rome. And his purpose in writing the letter was to fuse the Gentile and Jewish believers into a united congregation, and so that they went from being an us and them group to a us only. It's just us. We're we're all in this together. Uh, and we're going to focus, focus on the opening paragraphs of what we call chapter 8. But they build on the previous chapter uh, where Paul writes uh, these words. In verse 15 he says, I don't understand what I'm doing for I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. Then in verse 19, he goes on to say, I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. So I find the law, the law that when I do good, evil, it want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? I 
and then it makes a sharp 180 degree spin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Following Jesus, Paul is describing it in chapter 7, sounds more like a struggle to survive than a great way of life. And in context like this, by the way, this, that word flesh, he says, with my flesh I serve the law. In, in, those, in those contexts, that, that word refers to the rebellious mindset that all humans have. The rebellious mindset that tells God, I'll take care of this myself. I'm going to do it myself. The flesh describes our stubborn self-dependence, our independence, and our refusal to trust God entirely and unconditionally. The original readers of this letter ask, why does following Jesus feel like a struggle to survive in our battle to, to sin, to live the way God wants us to live? Why is this such a battle? And Paul is talking to them, and he's already dropping hints. Part of it is the fact that you want to do it on your own. Then he hits chapter 8. He says, there is therefore now, he's already talked about how God is, he's already, he couldn't wait. Remember, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He couldn't wait. He already, he's already dropped in. There's a hint coming. Jesus has helped us. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Wow, that's a really long sentence. Let me give you the Haynes condensed version. God did what we couldn't do, so quit acting like you can do it. And let him do it for you. I'm going to pause for a minute. How many of you have ever had had the joy of working with toddlers. You know, I can't do it myself! And you know good and well they can't. But you have to wait until they finally figure it out. And then they say, okay, I really can't tie my shoes. Would you do it for me? Yeah, watch. You watch me and you know, you're going to get this one of these days. One of these days, you are not going to need this. But there are some things we will always need somebody to do for us. And there is something we will always need God to do for us. And that is to help us overcome this attitude of, I don't need you, God. I'll take care of myself. 
goes on in verse 5 and he says, those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. Remember the flesh is that attitude that says, I can do it myself. I'm in charge of my life. Occasionally, I may just want a little help, God. You know? But I want you to help me do what I want to do. But those who live according to the Spirit, on the other hand, Paul says, have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. The outlook of the flesh is death. But the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God. <clears throat> For it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Well, of course it's not able to do so, because it sells God, I can do it myself. Thank you very much. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... This person does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is your life because of righteousness. Moreover, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, I'm just going to pause for a minute, in case you're not sure who raised Jesus from the dead, that was God. So, the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. The one who raised Christ from the dead, it's still God, will also make your mortal bodies alive through his Spirit who lives in you. Someday, by and by, at the resurrection, but even now, he lives in you and renews you and refreshes you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under an obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, if you live according to that rebellious mindset, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. So what is Paul doing here? Let's, let's just take a moment to talk about our, our yards for a minute. I'll get, for those of you who are momentarily lost, I'll bring it back. How do we clear dandelions from our yards? Is, is it enough just to blow off those ugly yellow flowers? Oh, no. Uh, you either have to dig out that root or spray a solution on that plant that dandelion that's going to soak down in there and kill the root, right? There's only one way to deal with the dandelion, and that is deal with the root. The only thing worse than a dandelion, by the way, is a thistle. <laughs> Dandelions have roots about this long. I tried to dig a thistle out of the flower bed in front of our house a couple of years ago. 
I dug a hole that was a good two and a half feet deep and I still was not to the bottom of the root of that thistle plant. I gave up, whacked that root, thinking surely that'll be enough. You're right to laugh. It wasn't. So I had to find something to spray it. Dandelions grow back every time unless you do something with a root. Here's the problem. We've learned about Jesus' work, the gospel, on the level of our sins. Surface issues, our behaviors, which are like the dandelion flowers. If I just straighten up this problem, if I just stop doing this, if I just start doing this, I'll get my act together. Instead, the true problem is our rebellious mindset the root, the dandelion, like the dandelion root. So as long as we're trying to deal with the flower, the behaviors, we, we, we have embraced this kind of a believe and behave practice for our faith. I believe in Jesus, so I need to behave right. We're settling for the unending, unsuccessful struggle because the root's always going to be putting up more flowers. They keep coming back. Those acts of rebellion keep coming back, just like dandelions keep throwing out new flowers as long as the root is still there. We sin again, so we ask God to forgive us again. We promise we're going to do better the next time. We believe and we're going to behave better. Till the next time. And it may be a longer time until the next time, but sooner or later, we sin again, we do something we said we're never going to do again, and so we ask God to forgive us again, and on and on it goes, and sooner or later, we either get discouraged, well, we do get discouraged. We will get discouraged, because it's, and then we're going to start, well, what's going to happen? Uh, multiple things happen. Some people get discouraged and they just give up. This must not be true. I can't change. Therefore, did you hear, hear this? I can't change. Therefore, the gospel, what Jesus promised, isn't true. That's not the issue. Hang on. I can't change, so this thing must probably, well, it just must not be that big a deal. It must not really be wrong. Or 
God's going to forgive me anyway. Why am I worried about it? Those are the kinds of the answers we start giving ourselves and excuses we start making up with. This is not what Paul is talking to us about in Romans chapter 8. That is the tyranny of trying to manage our sins. We are not asked to be in the sin management business. That's like mowing dandelions and expecting them to go away. That's like trying to dig up a two and a half foot plus thistle weed root knowing good and well there's probably another six to who knows how many inches are going on down there. As long as the root is there, it will come back. Trying to deal with our sin acts feels like a struggle to survive until we ask Jesus to deal with the root problem which is our rebellious mindset. One of my favorite authors, and you know it because I quote him frequently, is J.D. Walton. He explains the reason we need Jesus to deal with the root of our sins. He does it so well. So I'm going to share it. It, it, it's, he says it's strange. The more you try to fight a sin, the more you empower the sin. It is the secret weapon of sin, sin sinful behaviors, to distract us from the grace of Jesus by making us sin-centered. To defeat sin, we must become grace-centered, which is Jesus-centered, which is Holy Spirit filled. Sin is not something that can be replaced with another behavior. Sin must be displaced, removed. Sin is displaced by the very presence of God. As long as we're thinking, I'm not gonna, 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 you're gonna. I am not gonna get mad at the next person that pulls out in front of me. I am not gonna have to bite my tongue to keep from saying things that I know I shouldn't say. I'm just not, I'm just not, I'm just that. Sorry, Jesus. Our brains don't work like that. Whatever you do, don't think about chocolate cake. Now everybody wants chocolate cake and ice cream. I know. Why does following Jesus feel more like a struggle to survive than a great way of life these days? Uh, on the one hand, depending on our efforts to straighten up and fly right leads to defeat, despair, denial, and death. 
all the time, over and over and over again. On the other hand, depending on the spirit leads to victory, thanksgiving, and life. But the only way, the only way we can get there is to let go and let Jesus displace and remove that attitude that says, I can do this myself. I'm in charge of my life. I, I got the willpower. I got the strength. I can do this. You and I need to welcome the life-giving spirit of Jesus to transform our mindsets toward God. Just think about it for a minute. What is the real reason, the reason behind the reason, behind the reason that we won't let go of the control we think we have and trust Jesus and to allow God to be in control of our lives and to lead us? What's the reason? We don't trust him. We'd never say it out loud. It goes back to that list of why people show up at church. Fear, guilt. Certainly don't want to think God, let God know that we don't trust him. <laughs> why is it we think we can hide stuff from God? Because we hide it so well from ourselves. Hey, here's a sermon in a sentence for the day. I want you to um, welcome the life-giving spirit of Jesus to transform your mindset toward God. Invite the Holy Spirit to deal with the root of defiance and distrust in you. Inviting him to do that won't eliminate that, uh, the need to ask God for forgiveness. But it will make it easier. It'll make the following and obeying easier and more joyful. When the Spirit comes and takes that root of distrust and defiance away from us and replaces it with his peace and his joy and his presence, it's a good way of life. Even when we mess up. I mess up once in a while. <laughs> don't tell me about all the times you know I've messed up. I, I don't need to know all the stuff. I'll just let the Holy Spirit take care of that part. Uh, last week, uh, Finally, I had the opportunity and we took advantage of doing something we haven't done for a long time. We went to camp. It was online. <laughs> went to the camp that she grew up in. Frankfurt camp, Frankfurt, Indiana. 
Her oldest brother was preaching, and so was our friend Dale Freed. And Dale Freed preached a sermon that he's preached in this building. And I've heard. And he did, I'm just going to be honest, he preached it quite a bit like he preached in here. I know the introduction was very similar. It, it started like this. Tonight I'm going to talk about talk to you about unforgiveness. Some of you had a name come to your mind as soon as I said that. Yep. A couple names came to mind. And my immediate response was to pray. Holy Spirit, that must be the enemy accusing me because uh, I've been practicing for a long time not carrying grudges against people. I don't bear with people. I know there are people that have different things and different thoughts and different attitudes. And I, I put away whatever grievances that people have. But if by some slim chance I'm carrying a grudge, let me know. I said it just about like that. Pretty confident in myself. Listen to the rest of the sermon. There was, no, there was silence. There was no response. No big heavy load of guilt. I'm going, oh, we're really good. Then I prayed again at the end of the, of the message. You know, Holy Spirit, if I am unforgiving, please let me know. Three days later, Answer to my question was very clear. Yep. I held an unforgiving attitude toward the folks who had come to mind. And I went, whoa. I didn't think that was true. So I ask God to forgive me and help me to forgive as Jesus forgave me. Now, I learned a lesson. I'm still learning lessons. Um, I learned a lesson from this. One that I knew was, I, I, I knew a little bit about, but I'm finding out is even more true. Denial is tremendously deceptive. Denial is tremendously deceptive, but the Holy Spirit is patient. The Holy Spirit orchestrates things to bring things about till that we find the truth and are confronted with the truth. Uh, lesson number two, real good sign of denial. If when you see something like, or hear something like, uh, I'm going to be talking about unforgiveness, names come to mind, you probably need to deal with it, and your first response is, well, that's not me. I'm, very I'm a very forgiving person. I don't bear grudges. At least for me, if the first, your first response is, that's not my problem, that's probably denial, and you should probably stop and let the Holy Spirit talk to you then instead of three days later. 
just try to remember that. Depending on our efforts to manage our sin, acts leads to defeat, despair, denial, and uh, death. But depending on the Spirit to transform our mindset toward God leads to victory, thanksgiving, and life. We can become a living, loving sanctuary for people in our community. We can become a, a community, an organization, I don't know. A congregation where people experience Jesus. So each time one of us welcomes the Holy Spirit to work in, in, in our lives individually and in our lives collectively, God releases more love in us and through us as a church. We can become, we, on site and online, we can become a connection point for people looking to encounter God. Our gatherings can end with folks saying, isn't God good? Jesus met with me. When the Holy Spirit truly moves, God is the one who gets the glory. Not the preacher, not the singers, not, not the people in the church. Jesus is the one that people honor when the Holy Spirit moves. So let's pray that God would empower us so radically that we would get no glory, no honor, and no reputation. That people would see what God does in us glorify Jesus and only Jesus so I want to invite you to join me in praying for God's life-giving spirit to fill us some of you may be thinking I already did that once I did that twice Let's do it again. As long as we're here in this world, there's always room for more of the Spirit in our lives. Folks, if you're online, just want you to know the camera's going to be focused on the screen while we're singing and praying so that whatever's happening here and the movement around is not going to be a distraction to you. And for those of you who are on site, if you would like to pray at the altar rail, I want you to feel free to do so. I want to invite you to join me in praying, or singing our prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you.
sense of obligation. We give you all the failures that we've had in trying to manage the sin in our lives. discouragement, we give you our denial. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to the truth of our desperate need for your help. 
prayed that you would fill us. Fill us with your holy presence. sent to love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. Man, every time I say that, why does he have to put the standard that high? I couldn't just say, you go love your neighbor like your mama loves you. That would be a whole lot easier. I mean, mama, was le mama loved me a lot. Right? But mama didn't die for me. Mama might have. What does it look like to love our neighbors the way Jesus loves us? It means we are willing to lay down our agendas, our plans, and our lives seek their best. It means that we'll begin praying and working for their blessing. Hoping and praying and helping them to see that God will always be with them and that we will always do our best to stand with them. To help them. You are sent to love as Jesus loves you. Go in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.